so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Do you want to get all that gunk out of your mouth, though, before we... Like, you want to take a... Wow, that's just... You don't like eating noises? Well, it's just, it's just, it's, it's just a lot to take, yeah. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me on this really sad and hard week is Brent Leatherwood. That's right. I, I think, uh... The heaviness of this week, you know, your opening talks about what we're focused on at the URLC this week. I, I think this week has just been a week where we've just tried to slow down and just process all of these major tragic and heartbreaking events that uh, have occurred just uh, within the last seven days. I think that's kind of been our focus this week. Would you agree? Yes, we actually have been pretty quiet as far as new content goes just because the the events of the moment just seem to lend themselves more toward lament and grief and uh, being quick to listen and slow to speak. And so that's what we're just practicing at the ERLC this week. So instead of starting with what the ERLC has been talking about, we're going to just do our format a little bit differently and dive right into talking about the major events of this week. Well, last week uh, when we talked, it was already a tragic week because of the horrifying uh, shooting that took place in Buffalo, and it, it seemed like things only got worse. On Sunday, a huge independent investigation of the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee, uh, one of the entities uh, that's a part of our, our convention, uh, that report was released and it came back with uh, horrifying and tragic details about the way that abuse has been either covered up or ignored or survivors uh, being stonewalled. So that came out on Sunday. And then in the middle of this week, we had w- words don't actually aren't able to be used appropriately to describe the magnitude of the tragedy that has occurred at an elementary school, Rob Elementary School, down in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 students have been killed, two of their teachers, uh, because a evil, deranged 18-year-old man got access to, to that elementary school and murdered these children and their teachers. And uh, it's just, it is a... It's a heavy week. It was a dark, heavy week where it just seems like evil was all around us. 
It is. And in an age, a social media age, where we demand quick answers, it's hard to sit and wait and figure out more of the details of what's going on in these various situations and then figure out answers to complex problems. Um, We want it rightly so fixed right away. We want, in reference to the Sexual Abuse Task Force report, we want survivors to be cared for. We want abuse done away with. We want abusers and enablers held to account. And then with the shootings, we want children to not be afraid to go to school. We want parents to not have to grieve the loss of their children when they expected them to be home from school that day. We we don't want deranged men and women to be able to go into anywhere and shoot anybody. We want these things fixed, but we don't know exactly how to fix them. And that is really, it's a hard thing to sit with as we we grapple with the reality of the evil that's in our world that mm. we see over and over and over again. Mm. So let's look at these two instances one at a time and, and let's go in reverse order. Let's Let's look at the shooting that took place and so the Washington Post is kind of giving a, an overview here, and, and we'll link to these stories in the show notes. And it says, The gray Ford pickup truck veered into a ditch with such force that people who live on the block assumed it was an accident and rushed over to help the driver. Instead, according to witness and police accounts, Salvador Rolando Ramos emerged wearing tactical gear and carrying an AR-15-style rifle he bought this month just after his 18th birthday. Bystanders scattered as Ramos hopped a fence, exchanged gunfire with a school police officer, and entered through a side door to rob elementary. Inside, he embarked on a deadly rampage that brought the national scourge of school shootings to a fourth-grade classroom in this southern Texas town. Quote, that's where the carnage began. Stephen McGraw, director of the Texas Department of Public Safety, said at a news conference Wednesday, Authorities say the attack was part of a grisly checklist Ramos had shared in private social media messages early Tuesday. The first item was to kill his grandmother, who lives near the school. He shot her in the face, authorities said, and then he left her for dead as he drove off in her truck. I shot my grandmother, Ramos wrote in an update. The next threat, according to the messages, was to shoot an elementary school. Within minutes of pressing send, shortly after 11.30 a.m., Ramos was barricaded inside a classroom with 19 students and two teachers he would kill. Those are the central elements of the timeline pieced together from law enforcement statements, witness accounts, and social media posts by families of victims. In the hours after the shooting, associates of Ramos shared disturbing exchanges or observations about him that suggested he was in a downward spiral with a miserable home life, no chance of graduating with a senior class, and a history of being bullied for his speech and attire. And so, Lindsay, it is just abundantly clear from this reporting that we live, I mean, Christians, we know this, we live in a fallen world. That seems, that that almost seems too basic to describe what happened here, but it is true. And and that's the thing. Maybe Maybe we as Christians over the years, maybe we actually haven't done a good enough job fully explaining what that means when we say we live in a fallen and broken world. And the enemy runs this world. 
And so these sorts of heinous acts, they're going to characterize this fallen world that we live in. But I know that that is, at this moment, that is certainly no consolation to these families and that community. Yeah, Brent, we, you know, the enemy is the prince of darkness and he's the ruler of this world. But when we talk about us being fallen, the world being fallen, I think part of it is hard to grapple with because it's hard for us to grasp the depth of our depravity apart from Christ and the depth of the world's fallenness apart from him. And it's hard for us to, and of course we wouldn't want to, but it's hard for us to even think up the uh, magnitude of the evil acts that happen because of the sinfulness of human hearts. And then you, you know, the enemy is the rule of this world, but the Christian worldview, the the Bible teaches us that um, and explains these things that are happening because of the fallenness of the world. But then we know that we're, we don't need to be given over to despair because we know that's only because the Lord has given him a window of time in which to operate. And that doesn't make sense to us now. We can't comprehend it. We can't understand it when things like this happen. I don't understand why the Lord would allow things like this to happen. And yet we know that God is going to make all things right one day and that the enemy does not have the final say and that he is going to be crushed under the Lord Jesus's feet. And that's what gives us hope in the midst of such despair. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why Christianity makes sense to me and God's word is so powerful to me because it gives an explanation for what we are experiencing in this just grievous world. But then it also gives us hope that we will not stay here in this despair and in this sin forever. But one day, death and pain and crying, tears, they will be no more. And that day definitely cannot come fast enough. It's just hard. It's hard to imagine why the Lord bears with us and lets this world continue as it is. And without a doubt, a number of people in the Uvalde community are turning to their faith. Uh, Wall Street Journal kind of spotlights that, and it says uh, this. More than 1,000 people from this grieving city leaned into their faith Wednesday evening as they gathered to listen to pastors offer messages of strength and salvation just 30 hours after a man shot and killed 19 children and two teachers in a local elementary school. Quote, God is here with us tonight, Pastor Tony Grubin of Baptist Temple Church told the people gathered at the Uvalde County Fairplex, God still loves you. And God still loves those little children. Community members packed the stands, spilled into the aisles, and stood on the dirt rodeo floor where the ministers preached from a stage under the flags of Texas and the United States. White cowboy hats dotted the audience along with scores of maroon t-shirts that said the Uvalde Coyotes, the high school mascot. A phalanx of police officers stood, stone-faced, watching the crowd, and scores of journalists from around the world aimed their cameras and beamed the scene around the globe. And uh, we should note, there are a number of Southern Baptist Convention uh, cooperating churches that are in and around this community uh, that are leaning in, and our state conventions, our Baptist state conventions in Texas, uh, the Southern Baptists of Texas Convention and the Baptist General Convention of Texas, uh, both of them have deployed 
ministers and uh, staff uh, down to Uvalde to wrap their arms around that community and serve uh, in this moment. And so we are we are so thankful to them. And and look, the uh, the SBC is is not silent on this. Uh, in, in 2018, we actually passed a resolution on on gun violence and and mass shootings and condemned this sort of of violence and asked that it be stopped. And specifically, uh, the SBC called on federal, state, and local authorities to address the epidemic of gun violence by evaluating the societal maladies uh, that lead to escalations in gun violence and mass shootings. And then asked furthermore that we call on federal, state, and local authorities to implement preventative measures that would reduce gun violence and mass shootings while operating in accordance with the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And, you know, that first part in particular is speaking to the deeper issue here. There have been, since the beginning of history, we, we read about it in Scripture, there, there are these deranged individuals out there that are overtaken with evil. So that's not new. What is new is the both extreme isolation, seemingly, that a lot of these disturbed individuals are facing, but then also the fact that they can connect with or learn about other instances where they may say, hey, this dissatisfaction that I'm feeling, this need to act out, they learn about it online. And in some cases, they get either radicalized online or they summon up enough enough ill will to say i'm going to act on it and i'm 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 going to take innocent lives there's a unique mixture of kind of issues there that seem to be preying uh, upon these individuals and then look let's admit it america we we have a unique gun culture and there are a number of instances throughout our history and even today where owning a gun makes complete sense. I own multiple guns in my household. And so it is a part of our history. It's a part of our culture. Uh, we have to understand, though, uh, that there's a number of uh, guns out there that are either because of that, easy to obtain, or you can obtain them illegally very easily. I, I'm not sure exactly how this individual, I know he purchased the weapons. I, I'm just not sure how that took place, and that hasn't been made clear yet. But obviously, he's he had access, he was upset, and no one was able to intervene because it, it appears from the early reports, uh, he was fairly isolated. But he was upset enough in his isolation to say, I'm now going to act on it. And that's, that's the part I'm getting to is that previously, it seems that our bonds of community were much stronger where you had individuals in and outside of the home because of either church groups or community activities or, or just neighborhood bonds where people were able to say, hey, something's wrong with this child with this teenager, we need to get him some help. And it seems like that sort of mediating bond, that connection, is it, just not there anymore in our society. And so you have individuals leap from 
seeming despair to incredibly destructive action. And this week, I actually happened to be down in Texas uh, when this happened. I, I got to sit for a while with the former president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, uh, Dr. Richard Land. And he was talking about the effects of the digital age on our on our children. And he pointed this out. He's like, you have to understand the psychology that that is at play with young men and, and young women to an extent. He's like, with with girls – Social media and the the effects of the digital age, when they go into an area of harm, for young ladies, it's self-harm. For boys, it becomes destruction, outward destruction. And uh, that was pretty insightful in the in the wake of this, although we still, again, we still don't know a whole lot of details. There's going to be a lot to sort out about this. But there's, there's something there that I, I think this resolution speaks to that we've got to figure out how to reestablish bonds and Christians are called to lead the way there by loving our neighbor. And in this instance, we're talking about our literal neighbors right next door and the people that are on our street, like getting to know them and establishing those bonds. So maybe if somebody is headed down a dark path, you know them enough to be able to speak into their lives and the lives of the people in their household so maybe some sort of tragic moment like this can be headed off. And then the the second part of the resolution I just read, like we we are actively calling upon our nation's policymakers uh, at all levels, come together and, and work on this. And and we acknowledge obviously the the Second Amendment. There is room to seek solutions within the constitutional framework that we have that respects. Uh, the fact that individuals are allowed to own firearms. Because look, it doesn't get talked about enough, and this is often a, a critique of media, but there are instances, multiple instances that happen throughout the year uh, where individuals are able to protect themselves because they own a firearm. And, and so we need need to, we just need to come together. And that's the thing. We not only do not have bonds within our literal neighborhoods, but so often our, our policymakers don't have bonds. They don't have those open lines of dialogue where they can seek consensus. Now, I will say there is an update uh, even on that front that just before we came in here to record that says that Texas uh, Senator John Cornyn is actively working in the in the wake of this tragedy to, to try and seek solutions. And like that's that's the kind of signals we we need to to see from our policymakers. If anything is is going to get done, those conversations have got to be opened. And so we all need to come together in the wake of this because this is the deadliest. Do you realize it's been ten years since Sandy Hook? We've now lived with this for far too long. This crisis, and one of our colleagues internally shared something she had seen on social media where somebody was pointing out the generation of school shooters that are conducting these rampages were themselves the children who were being trained how to avoid school shooting. So this person was effectively saying the school shooters now know the techniques for how our children are being protected in the, in the midst of a crisis like this. And they know where to go to find victims. And that is, whew, 
that's just a, a lot to take in. It is terrifying, and it's terrifying that we live in a day and age where we're afraid to send our kids outside by themselves, afraid to send them to school, whatever it might be. I think in the midst of all you said, it's important to understand that there we've got to work for some solutions but there are no easy answers. Also that we don't know all the details yet, so we're still waiting to find out what all is going on and what all was happening. But yet we do have an isolation problem, a community problem. We maybe now are beginning to see some of the effects of social media on those who who have known nothing else but a, a smartphone by their side in a digitally connected age. We've got to be willing to do what it takes while respecting our freedoms to protect the most vulnerable among us, our little children, and got to be willing to come up with creative answers. I appreciated David French's article that he sent out about um, red flag gun laws. If someone indicated uh, mental health issues, you could report them, and then they'd, what, temporarily have their guns taken away? Right. So this is the kind of thing I'm talking about solutions have to be done in line with our constitutional framework, right? People out there who are proposing as a public policy solution, well, we just we just need to ban guns or we just need to do these giant gun buyback programs or we just uh, need to confiscate guns. Well, A, that is not a serious proposal because we do have the Second Amendment and because we do have – look, it, it, we think through so much of this in our kind of urban or suburban mindset. If you are out in these vast stretches of rural parts of America, you need to have a weapon uh, because it may take a while for first responders to get to you wherever you may be. So it, it's not an easy solution. That's the thing. It's a complicated issue. And – what I'm saying is there are some – there may be some public policy solutions that could be advanced, but it's it's even deeper than that. But one of these public policy solutions that can be done that is consistent with the Second Amendment is something called a, a red flag law. Uh, there, there are some different versions of it, so I'm, I'm speaking somewhat generally here. Uh, but you start from the basis of this. Uh, taking away any sort of constitutional right, it requires a very high bar. Uh, by law enforcement to do so. Uh, one thing to lower that bar is a a temporary restriction, and that's what a red flag law seeks to do. Individuals may notice, uh, such as think of in this case, parents or guardians may notice that someone in their household, a child, a teenager, seems to be bent towards harm, either self-harm or harm of others. And they could appeal to local law enforcement Uh, through this red flag law to say, hey, this individual seems to be a danger and I think needs to not have access to weapons or be able to purchase weapons for a temporary time. This is the key. And this is is where it kind of is helpful towards the Constitution. That individual, that that person, gets the chance to contest this uh, within a judicial setting. So that's what – like that is a creative solution. There are others. I, I don't know what those are. We're not advocating for any one or the other. What we're trying to say is the SBC has spoken and condemned these instances. It has lamented these instances and, and calls on communities to lament them. But it is also pointing out 
there are deeper social and moral concerns that are at play here. And we would urge our public policymakers to come together and find public policy solutions that are consistent with the Second Amendment. The, the SBC has been very clear about that. And so that's that's what we are talking about here. It would seem that something like a red flag law in that public policy section would be consistent, but the SBC hasn't taken a stand on that or against it. But we do need to do something here. And we need to start asking ourselves in our own home, in our own communities, what we can do to build up our bonds around us and uh, encouraging our public policy makers to come together to seek solutions as well. And in the meantime, we need to be praying for those pastors and believers there in Texas, that the Lord would enable them to minister his comfort to these families, to this community, that the Lord would open a door for the gospel to bring light and healing and beauty from the ashes and that the Lord would enable believers to just minister, meet needs, spiritual and physical needs for as long as it takes there in Texas. That's right. And we know that a a good number of pastors, uh, particularly Southern Baptist pastors, are going to be talking to their congregations this week about the report that was released. We mentioned this at the top of the show. Uh, On Sunday, uh, an independent report from Guidepost Solutions uh, was released. And over the last eight months or so, uh, they have been examining the last 20 years of what has taken place with regard to sexual abuse uh, within the SBC Executive Committee. As a reminder, the SBC, 48,000 churches, 14 million members, it has 12 denominational entities that just help conduct the work that our churches have said we want to engage in. Obviously, the RLC, we are one of those. We're the public policy one. The SBC Executive Committee is uh, more or less the the financial uh, committee that takes in and disperses tithe money and offering money that comes in to our, our convention of churches and uh, is often seen as kind of like the main cheerleader for the vehicle for doing that, the cooperative program, which is what Southern Baptists sacrificially give to. So the report that came out on Sunday caused a number of national news outlets to report on it. And so we'll just look at two reports that, that actually happened to come from Christianity today. Armed with a secret list of more than 700 abusive pastors, Southern Baptist leaders chose to protect the denomination from lawsuits rather than protect the people in their churches from further abuse. Survivors, advocates, and some Southern Baptists themselves spent more than 15 years calling for ways to keep sexual predators from moving quietly from one flock to another. The men who controlled the executive committee which runs day-to-day operations of the SBC, knew the scope of the problem. But working closely with their lawyers, they maligned the people who wanted to do something about abuse and repeatedly rejected pleas for help and reform. Quote, behind the curtain, the lawyers were advising to say nothing and do nothing, even when the callers were identifying predators still in SBC pulpits, according to a massive third-party investigative report released Sunday. The investigation centers responsibility on members of the EC staff and their attorneys and say the hundreds of elected EC trustees were largely kept in the dark. EC General Counsel Augie Bodo 
and longtime attorney Jim Gunther advised the past three executive committee presidents, Ronnie Floyd, Frank Page, and Morris Chapman, that taking action on abuse would pose a risk to SBC liability and polity, leading the presidents to challenge proposed abuse reforms. This is an incredibly sad report, really eye-opening. Of course, survivors and those standing beside them have known for years what's going on, but I think that this has opened the eyes of, of many of us who didn't know these details and the extent of what has been going on within the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. This episode will drop on Friday, and we will have an explainer out about the structure of the Southern Baptist Convention that explains the entities, because I think people are confused, and they think this report investigates the whole of the Southern Baptist Convention, churches, et cetera, but it's one entity. It's the executive committee, and they don't exactly understand what the executive committee does. So we're trying to explain that and, and shed some light on that in uh, this explainer, but uh, this investigation absolutely needed to be done. I've been really encouraged by some people online who are a part of the Board of Trustees for the Executive Committee who voted against waiving privilege, the attorney-client privilege, but now they see that that was something that needed to be done, and so they've apologized. Some of them voted against it, not out of bad motives, but They didn't know why it needed to be waived, and now they see. And so I've been really encouraged by those back and forths online where people have been extending grace to one another in the midst of this. But uh, it's a hard report that's going to take a while to digest, and um, that is, we hope, going to lead to some major change within the Southern Baptist Convention. We look forward to the recommendations that are going to come forward by the, the Sexual Abuse Task Force. Um, we've gotten maybe a glimpse of that into what Guidepost has somewhat recommended, but it's definitely time for uh, change, and this is a day of reckoning for the Southern Baptist Convention. Yes, yeah, so it was just to help folks understand, it was a 300-page report. The last part of that were recommendations from the investigators themselves. This coming week, we are anticipating that the Sexual Abuse Task Force, whose members were appointed by SBC President Ed Lytton, Uh, They themselves, as a group of pastors and lay leaders, uh, will be recommending reforms or initiatives in light of this report. Now, some of it is is going to be very consistent with with what the outside investigators have already recommended. Uh, But my sense is, is, is they are trying to give something to the messengers, the representatives of the churches. Uh, who will be coming together in Anaheim, California in just a few weeks, trying to give them something tangible to to actually interact with and potentially vote on at that annual convention. You can't read through this document without being heartbroken for the survivors and the ways that they were just ignored. And you can't help but read through the ways that they were not acted upon, not listened to, not heard from, not acknowledged, not ministered to, not shown the kindness and given the kind of help that they needed. You can't read through this and the cold-hearted way that they were treated and you're your mind, I, w- I would think and, and hope for a lot of us, your mind can't help but go to Luke 10 
and the parable of the Good Samaritan. You can't help but see in that Luke 10 and the and the way that the 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 Levite and the priest saw that there was a man hurting, and instead of running to his help, running to his aid, running to give him comfort, said, nope, I'm going to go ahead and cross on the other side of the road. I'm going to ignore it. This is a situation I'm just not going to offer any help whatsoever. You just can't help but seeing that there's an injustice here. And I am just so sorry that the survivors have gone through this kind of treatment. And look, let's acknowledge this. This kind of treatment, it goes far beyond the executive committee. We we know of other instances uh, out there. But my hope is, is that this, the darkness that has been revealed here, it, it will hopefully just be a season where darkness is all just brought out into the light so that we can truly address it in all of its forms, in all of its places. And you also, you can't read through this report and not, not see how, oh, I can, actually, I came away being very thankful that these survivors, they actually didn't give up on us because in so many ways they were just saying, hey, church, hey, church leaders in the EC, please just be the Christians that you say that you are. And I'm thankful that they didn't do it. And you know, I'm also thankful. I'm thankful that we had Pastor J.D. Greer as president of the SBC uh, for the three years that, that he was, because he was fearlessly taking this on. And th- the issue itself is, is a hard issue, there's no doubt. And, and so in some ways, you kind of expect any issue that's difficult, you're going to encounter some resistance. This report shows, oh, he was, <laughs> he, was, he was encountering far more than resistance. He was encountering and going up against a a system of cold heartedness, and I, I'm I'm just thankful he wasn't having any of it. So I'm I'm thankful uh, for him. I'm 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 thankful for so many others who have said abuse is wrong, abuse is a sin, abuse has got to be confronted, abuse has got to be stamped out. Uh, survivors have got to be advocated for. Survivors have got to be listened to. Survivors have got to be affirmed for their courage. And so that's that's where that's where I'm left. And and I'm I'm thankful we we've we've had the EC uh take some steps. We've had some other entities uh come out with some st- this this is good. This this is there's a there's a lot ahead for our churches and the the messengers who are represented. There's a lot ahead for them to consider and to take action on. And our prayers are with them and and they should know, obviously, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as as we have been for several years now, we we stand ready to serve when it comes to combating sexual abuse. Yeah, the convention will be telling. It's also important to note that the report revealed that while there were calls for a database for years and excuses were made, that a list was being compiled of those. It, now, I believe it came from, has come from news reports. So it's those had, who had been re- reported or in the news, uh, I could be getting that wrong, but a list has been compiled over the years. And so the executive committee, the board of trustees for the executive committee met, and that list will be released as soon as some steps are taken where it's vetted and uh, some things will need to be redacted, but that list will be made public. And so it's the start of a list that that survivors have been calling for for years in order to keep 
people safe. I just think about if people had stepped up and done something, all the the lives that could have been protected, mm. the the people who would not have been um, victimized and abused and wouldn't have to be known as a survivor. And it just, it's just so sad to me. But like you said, we are hopeful that this is the beginning of a a new day and a new era within the Southern Baptist Convention because our Southern Baptist Convention isn't our identity. We are believers mm. of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we should walk in a manner worthy of Him yeah. and be willing to do what is right, no matter the cost, no matter how long it takes. Yeah, and just to further underscore that point, so there's there's been a new story that's come out from Christianity Today, and it says, the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee decided to do what previous leaders refused to do for 15 years, release a list of pastors who have been credibly accused of abuse. The quick moves contrast with the historic approach captured in the investigative report and in last year's meetings, where ascending liability, which is a legal term, was a common talking point, and lawyers defaulted to closed-door sessions to advise the trustees. From SBC President Ed Litton, we have become too familiar with using techniques to slow processes down. We need to be very mindful that the world is watching, and they don't need to see business as usual. We have to do this right. Earlier this week, the EC also condemned a 2006 letter from former general counsel Augie Bodo to survivor Krista Brown, where he wrote that it would, quote, not be positive or fruitful for the EC to work with survivor advocates. The EC, the statement said, rejects this sentiment in its entirety and seeks to publicly repent for its failure to rectify this position and wholeheartedly listen to survivors. Brown told Christianity Today that she was grateful for the statement as well as other moves being made by the EC and its attorneys, including to consider pulling Bodo's retirement. The SBC Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission was also named in that letter to Brown, and its current president, Brent Leatherwood, joined in repudiating and rejecting it as well. And this is my quote. This entity long ago parted with the past advice of Mr. Bodo as we have sought to learn from, serve, and be an advocate for survivors. With what we know now, it is appalling this was ever advanced as legal counsel. But this is what you get when you view individuals crying out for help as potential plaintiffs rather than as neighbors who deserve our care and support. And that quote, actually, the part I quoted, potential plaintiffs, that, that's actually from the report. And it was saying that was the view in mind of the EC for all these years, that the survivors were coming forward and not seen as individuals who are vulnerable, as individuals who are marginalized, as individuals we should be advocating for, but instead as potential plaintiffs who are going to harm us legally. And I, just, I hate to say it, but in effect, those actions have the effect of, of dehumanizing them. And that's, these, are, these are people made in the image of God. That is the last approach we should take. And so it's like you said, Lindsay, I, I am hopeful that this week we, we are lamenting and we are grieving what has been suspected and, and now confirmed by this thorough, thorough report. And my hope is, is it, it actually spurs us to action, collective action as a convention. And as we close out this week, I want to just highlight a prayer piece that we put out uh, the day after the report was um, revealed, because that, when words fail, that is our first response, because we are we are a people of prayer because we know the God of the universe and 
In him, we have justice, and in him, we have hope. In him, we have comfort and care, and we can rest in the fact that he will make all things new, everything sad and bad he will make right again. And so we just we want to put our hope and our trust in him, and we want to pray for the survivors. And so I just wanted to read a paragraph from that, which will also be in our show notes, the, the link to the piece. Uh, it says, may the afflicted see that they are not alone. May they see you as you are, an ever-present help in trouble and a loving shepherd in the midst of a dark storm. Lord, you are good and active in the midst of this great darkness. Help us, your people, meet all of those affected by these revelations with love, grace, and care. Help us to meet tangible needs and stand beside those made in your image through the long haul. Help us be faithful and grant those who have endured abuse courage and strength as they walk this difficult path and seek safety and justice. Lord, our words are not enough. Our hearts are broken. Sin has now been revealed for all to see. We plead with you to give us repentant hearts and a contrite spirit that will do what's right, no matter the cost or how long it takes. In Jesus' just and merciful name. Amen. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.